Hello, is it Campaign Podcast you're looking for? Well, this is the Campaign Podcast brought to you by Campaign, the advertising industry magazine. I'm Omar Oaks, media and tech editor at Campaign. And I'm Brittany Kiefer, creativity and culture editor. Hi, Brittany. Later in this episode, you can hear my interview with Jake Dubbins, co-chair of the Conscious Advertising Network, and Laura Lesser, head of culture and innovation at O2. We talk about how money spent on ads is unwittingly supporting terrorism, hate speech, and the impact that has on brand safety. What are the causes and remedies for unethical advertising? But first, Brittany, how are you? How are you doing? How, how's, how are things going? Oh, I'm good, Omar. Um, the sun has emerged. Is that boring to talk about the weather? That's always that's very British of me, isn't it? The problem with talking about the weather is we're recording this at a different time to when people are listening. So we'll say it's really sunny and it'll be it'll be snowing in two days or whenever. Uh, oh, that's so yeah, right. Don't do that. Um, uh, well, I've got news for you, Brittany. Oh? I had to take I had to take the COVID test yesterday. Oh, I haven't done one yet. How was it? Oh, it was great. No, it was awful. It was terrible. What do you mean? How was it? It was. All, it's. I don't know if, if any <laughs> listeners have done it. It's really awful. You've got to jam a stick right at the back of your throat, and it makes you want to throw up. And then you've got to put the same stick up your nose and have a play with that. Um, and yeah, it's really difficult. I had to do it at my at home because um, there's a there's a South African variant outbreak in our area so the whole area has to get tested so oh that's alarming i don't think i could do it on myself i think i'd rather someone else test me yes for those invasive procedures i can't tell whether it's better to have someone else do it or do it myself because yeah it's it's difficult um but anyway uh, massive sympathy for anyone out there who has had to take the test indeed or has had covid uh also breaking news before we get going breaking news before we started recording that bbc3 is apparently making a comeback to our TV screens. Uh, this is after five years. It was 2016 that it went online only. Um, Brittany, what do you think about that? Well, I find it a bit confusing, but I, I didn't realise actually that BBC3's, BBC3 has been behind some of the its most popular shows lately. So like Normal People, Fleabag, Killing Eve. But I, I, it took me a minute to actually realize like where I watched those shows and I wasn't aware of which BBC channel had created it. But I guess I, wa- I would have watched it on iPlayer. So what do you think it means that they want to be back on linear TV? Well, I think it's strange because they did this in a move, well, firstly to save money. So I think it halved their budget from 60 million to 30 million by going online only. And also importantly, it was because this is a youth oriented channel and they said at the time that young people are watching more online. So it makes sense to do this. As you just said, if you're watching on iPlayer, does it matter whether you're watching on BBC three part of Mm. iPlayer or not? It's just the platform, right? The channels matter less uh, as you go down these digital platforms. Yeah, I uh, the the problem of reaching young people is a big one for the BBC. I have a profile coming out in the next issue of Helen Rhodes, who leads their in-house agency, BBC Creative, and she talks a lot about that, how that's part of her remit to reach younger viewers. And there have been, a, I mean, there have been a lot of reporting on this, but one thing that I thought was interesting was that in Ofcom's recently reported Uh, most recent annual report of the BBC. They talk about how the BBC demonstrated its really valuable public service role during the pandemic through its news coverage and its educational content that it provided 
to children, but at the same time, many of the trends that are causing issues for the broadcaster have actually accelerated. So more people are moving to digital channels and streaming services. So actually, like even though it has, you know, demonstrated that it has an important role at the same time it's getting even harder for it to reach new audiences including younger viewers so it'll be interesting to see if this move helps it or hurts it yeah Um, so much of um, the strength of the bbc is the multi-platform nature of what they do so if they've got a for instance bbc sounds they're so good at marketing bbc sounds across tv across radio and when they've got a big TV show, they're good at marketing that across uh, online and other platforms. So these things have a synergetic flywheel effect, don't they? And so, you know, maybe this is about money ultimately. But what it could be about is maybe it's not going to be so youth oriented anymore. So why not put it on broadcast again? Or it's just that maybe they've seen they take a look at it and they they by taking it off that broadcast channel you don't have the benefit of people discovering content on the electronic program guide on tv etc they're just bbc3 is just being held back um it's i th- there was um this story was actually um, floated about a year ago. It started leaking that the BBC were thinking about doing this. And um, some numbers came out at the time that said BBC Three's online audience had essentially flatlined. It was reaching only 8%, 8% of 16 to 34-year-olds each week. Um, so, so I think um, after five years, it's fair to say the, the, the experiment hasn't worked, Professor. <laughs> Right, let's talk about some stories. What's going on in advertising and media this week? Remember, listener, all stories and ads that we talk about are available to view on our website, which is campaignlive.co.uk or campaignlive.co.uk if you want to be weird about it. Um, first, let's talk about a new ad from Bodyform. Uh, we talked about taboos in advertising last week and... This is continuing the theme. Uh, this new ad from Bodyform, or Libres, as it's known in other markets, um, it's launched pain, hashtag pain stories to highlight the gender pain gap, not pay gap, but pain gap, and support earlier diagnosis for endometriosis. Uh, this is by Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO, written by Augustine Cerf and art directed by Lauren Peters at AMV BBDO. Um, so, Brittany, what are they trying to do here? So first, just to set up this campaign, it's Endometriosis Awareness Month, in case you didn't know. Um, But a lot of people don't know what endometriosis is, despite how prevalent it is. So about one in 10 women of reproductive age suffer from this condition. And it causes, I won't go into the uh, medical definition, but it causes pelvic pain and it can be really severe. And despite the prevalence of the condition, it can take an average of seven and a half years to diagnose it. So if you want more info on this, there's a piece that we actually published earlier this week by Louise Scotty from NABS, which talks about how employers should be aware of this condition and how common it is and how they can support women who might be suffering from it. So that's a really good explainer. But this campaign by Bodyform follows on from Womb Stories, which launched last year. And that was all about the different experiences of people living with wombs, vulvas, and periods. So it featured women who are experiencing things like miscarriage, the menopause, period pain, sex, and endometriosis was one of those. Um, But this kind of continues that 
by focusing specifically on pain and what they call the gender pain gap. Because a lot of women, well, this has a focus on endometriosis, but a lot of women experience various types of pain and painful conditions and are kind of conditioned to think, you know, brought up thinking like this is just normal. And one thing that informed the work was one of the creatives named Augustine Cerf. She herself has endometriosis. And she said to me, we're taught that painful periods are just normal. She went to about 10 different doctors to try to get a diagnosis for the pain she was experiencing. And they all said, you're completely fine. So she said, I was prepared just to lie under my desk with a heat patch and say, this is part of the deal. And she realized that, you know, whenever she would go to see a doctor, they would say, can you describe your pain on a scale of one to 10? Like we've all heard that when we've been at the doctors and she found that really reductive and it didn't really capture the experiences and the feelings that she was having. Um, So she came up with this idea, which is part of pain stories called the pain dictionary. And they worked with artists to create this new visual language for experiences of pain. So they come up with terms like pain drown or womb war or torture grips, which are kind of help people articulate their pain in a clearer way and give a kind of break the silence around these experiences. So hopefully encouraging that the diagnosis times will be even shorter and help people get the support they need for this condition really interesting so you mentioned they've created a the pain dictionary um using real descriptions of pain with people from endometriosis um they've also um launched a pain (laughs) what they've called the world the world's first pain museum yeah uh, for people to explore the gender pay gap one story at a time (laughs) on the face of it um it doesn't sound like something I'd be rushing to do when we, when we come out of lockdown to enter the pain museum. Um, but Well, it's a virtual only museum, but I think as, even though it sounds like something you may not want to explore, I think it's really useful not only for people who have experienced pain, who want to put some language behind what they've experienced to help them get help for it, but also for people who don't understand these experiences to help build empathy among them because like I said like so many people you know don't even know endometriosis is it's very likely there's someone in your life who's going through this and they might even not realize that they are going through this and they don't know how to explain it and I think what this campaign does is give some really practical tools and assistance to people to talk about their pain because until you know how to talk about your pain you can't get any help for it yeah that's absolutely right um and um you mentioned the piece by louise scody as well i mean do you get the impression that um things are getting better at least in terms of breaking down the taboo over this um something um you you mentioned um body form's previous campaign that was uh womb stories and i can't find a single person who didn't love it Mm. fantastic campaign but do you think that more and more we're seeing this sort of um this this honesty in advertising and that's helping to break down these taboos and they're not so taboo anymore Definitely. And I think advertising has a role to play, but actually what usually helps is just people who are in the public eye sharing their stories. So on endometriosis specifically, I think people like Lena Dunham, who've spoken really openly about her experiences with that, or in the UK, Emma Barnett, the broadcaster, she's written a whole book about 
periods, but she's talked very openly about her experience with endometriosis. Those kinds of stories can help break down these taboos. And then certainly brands like Bodyform have an important role to play in making this even more of a in the open issue. Yeah, Emma Barnett's great. Previously of of this parish, uh, in a in a previous iteration, Emma Barnett. Um, I also worked with her at the Telegraph, and she's very nice indeed. She won't remember me, um, but I can I can report she's very nice. Um, yeah, and body form has certainly come a long way since um, those ads twenty years ago. We had a woman jumping out of the plane because you know the pro- the product liberates her to do amazing things, and um, that familiar that familiar body form jingle. Do you want to sing it? Well. It went something like, Oh, body form, body form for you. <laughs> See. Yeah, that was great. Well, yeah, well, the, the body form's journey, I mean, we've written a lot about it, so I won't go into too much detail, but a few years ago, of course, they started... Um, this journey they've been on to break taboos as they say um and the first ad that did that was an ad that showed that depicted real menstrual blood instead of the blue liquid that normally stands for it in ads um so they started by showing period blood they went on to celebrate vulvas they've told these womb stories and now they're talking about pain and so it'll be interesting to see what they do after this but i always love their campaigns yeah, that always used to make me laugh. I have to be honest, when I was a kid, when they held up the blue little vial of blue liquid uh, to demonstrate, um, yes, very strange how we how we've evolved as a society. <laughs> okay, moving on, moving on. Uh, great campaign. Moving on. Uh, Airbnb had some interesting news, as reported by campaigns editor in chief Gideon Spanier. Um, Airbnb, the DRA hotel room operator, said it would make a permanent cut in the amount it invests in marketing after they halved marketing spend during the COVID-19 downturn. But it doesn't stop there. They also reported that the vast majority of spend that they were cutting was in performance marketing, not brand marketing. And CEO Brian Chesky said this slashing of performance marketing was going to be a permanent thing. Now, Brittany, I know this jumped out of you, (laughs) performance versus brand marketing. Now, it's it's very interesting. Let me tell you why. Is it too late for me to ask what performance marketing is? I feel like I should be an expert as I work at Campaign, but also I want to ask the question that many people are thinking, why does this matter? <laughs> well, performance, basically, it's anything that you can measure. So you're measuring the performance. Um, traditionally, with, you know, offline media, as we say, TV, newspaper print etc um it's it's diff- it's been difficult to measure the exact impact that your advertising is, is having um i always forget where the quote comes from that that you've heard this quote a million times you know i i i know that half of my marketing spending works i just don't know which half <laughs> um whereas um as with online tools or digital you're actually able to measure the performance of different things like you go an online ad for example say that you know click here for this discount you can measure how many people are clicking on that ad so performance marketing you know it covers search it covers digital online display covers social media um, any digital channels that you can measure the performance is basically what we mean so airbnb what they're talking about um 
they're, they're talking about in relative terms spending more on brand marketing so your your big tv outdoor campaign that's telling a message about what the brand stands for um there's something the the creative agency would be working on first and foremost and doing less of the performance optimization so you know can i get people to can i get more people to click on this email can i get more people to click on these search uh, results etc cetera, etc cetera. um so that's what they're talking about now with respect to last year, it's kind of like uh, no shit Sherlock in terms of it's a travel brand <laughs> and, you know, it's been spending less on marketing during COVID-19. Okay, we've seen mm-hmm. lots of brands do that. So from that respect, it's obvious. But on but for a brand which has essentially grown up um, doing lots of performance media, it's very interesting indeed. And so I guess, I guess we're seeing a, a few things now with Airbnb. Uh, number one, they said that despite their performance marketing going down so much last year, they said that 95% of their online traffic remained. Now, that's really interesting hmm. um, when you think that who's going to be looking for Airbnbs when you can't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so I think what that's telling us is they've just got such a dominant place in... Um, this this niche it's not even a niche anymore they've created about you know um you know um, people just just renting out their rooms as a hotel room they've and if we there may be some people who are starting to travel very soon as things start opening up and you bet that airbnb is going to be the first place that a significant amount of people um are going to be searching for so it's almost that it's it's almost like how amazon didn't have to advertise to an extent last year because they were so worried about fulfillment. Like right. They still added a hundred billion dollars in sales last year, yeah. even though they cut their marketing spend. Um, it's extraordinary. So I think that I think they're just looking at it's going to be to an extent pe- when things when people start traveling again, it's going to go crazy. It's going to go absolutely crazy, and they just don't need to invest the same amount in marketing. Um, so I, I think it tells us more about less about kind of does performance matter less. I think it's more about where where A and B Airbnb is as a brand, really. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I remember back in the day, kids, when Airbnb was just staying on someone's sofa who you didn't know and it wasn't a very appealing prospect but now I think especially last year and the gaps where or the moments where people could travel I found that Airbnb seemed to be the number one option because it maybe it was perceived as being a bit safer just um, going into an empty flat versus a hotel where there were other people um, and then isn't you know part of the government's lockdown exit roadmap I think self-catered holidays are allowed before staying in hotels so that correct me if I'm wrong but that would include Airbnb um, so I think yeah it could be interesting their brand could even be uh, could even benefit from these trends in travel yeah absolutely um, Airbnb is going to be a huge huge winner as, as we come out um, and as well um, the thing about brand versus performance you know we heard that we talked about the TV ad summit that we held last week as well and there's increasing sense that as technology improves more brand marketers are looking to do both to an extent and there's been a lot we had um, last year actually lots of work on this including by Justin Gibbons and other um, thought leaders in the media planning space um, where essentially you've got you know this distinction between public media 
private media, public media being your your TV, your outdoor, where everybody's seeing the same thing, and your private media, your digital channels, um, where people see different things with audience targeting. And essentially, you need to have that 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 that, that ballast of uh, TV and um, outdoor and big broadcast things because it gives credibility to your brand. And the performance stuff is kind of the stuff that sits around it and lifts that up. And I think increasingly, if you're a big brand like Airbnb, you can't do one or the other. It's increasingly you have to do both. And as technology improves, as you can do more audience targeting on digital TV, etc., you will be able to do both. Um, so that's so that's one that's to look out for as well. Speaking of private rooms, have you checked out Clubhouse yet? <laughs> I said I said that like it's a, I said that's like at the beginning of an ad. I, it's not. I promise. Like I, I was genuinely asking, have you checked out Clubhouse? Yes, Omar. I'm on Clubhouse. Oh, are you? Are you? A, are you a creator? No, I just am a silent lurker. Oh. I just go on see what people are up to. One time, I accidentally joined a room with my former editor Steve Barrett of PR Week New York, and it was just the two of us, and we ended up just having a catch-up about life. <laughs> oh, so you actually, unwittingly, you did a broadcast. You were actually on Clubhouse doing a broadcast. Yes. It was just, no one was listening. <laughs> no one was listening. It was much like a phone <laughs> chat, if you remember those. Wow. Uh, I guess that's just the future of media. Like, everyone, everyone's becoming a creator, but no one's actually got the time to listen to all this media that's being created. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting, and just wanted to quickly talk about it because we've had movements by the bigger social media companies in the last week, um, where it looks like they doing a bit of copycatting should we say uh instagram uh, has announced the launch of live rooms which enables users to add video feeds for up to three guests which are two more than the platform's previous limit and this is for when uh, people on instagram go live to their followers they can actually start bringing in up to three guests now and twitter twitter's been doing a lot in the last couple of weeks and uh, they announced spaces uh which um is a, a clubhouse competitor essentially um so what do we think about i guess how do we call them small pop-up broadcast formats is, do you think this is going to be increasingly a thing where um because because the thing about clubhouse is everything feels quite impromptu and anyone it's very interactive and anyone can potentially get involved do you think that's the that's the future maybe we should do that on some podcast we just randomly do on clubhouse and get people involved yeah maybe we should try it well people have said it reminds them of the early days of twitter when it it didn't have as much of a reach or as many people on twitter and it felt a bit more like this community that you not everyone knew about where you would just share your thoughts and interact with others and meet people online who you wouldn't normally come across um so it it seems to have a bit more of that vibe to it but I actually do think that there's a lot of potential here for growth like me I could see the the appeal after you explain it like just seeing who's around and you could be in the same room potentially I've heard stories of you know with someone who's a celebrity or some kind of public figure that you wouldn't normally interact with and suddenly be listening in on a conversation with them I, I, I'd be into that yes uh, a lot of people would like that for some reason you reminds me of the last time we were in Cannes in 2019 where I was in the same room as John Legend because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he came into the press room not because uh, I was invited to a, a special party or anything like that um, the obvious issues it creates um, are brand safety issues because the fact that anyone can broadcast things in real time and there aren't there isn't any moderation on it you can obviously see the potential for you know 
I don't want to list all the different <laughs> brand safety problems, but you you can imagine, you can imagine. Uh, which reminds me, have you checked out OnlyFans? No, Omar, what are you implying? <laughs> OnlyFans is a content creator website. It's been around for a while and, um, well, I'd, listeners, uh, Google it, Google it. and um, But not at work. Not, no, not at work. Definitely not. Um, it's, it's, the broader point about social media is interesting about how, I mean, I, I described it as copycatting. I'm, I'm sure they're going to say it's sufficiently different um, and that's fine. Um, but I do think generally there's been a lack of innovation in social media. I don't mm. think we've really seen Facebook in particular. We've seen lots of things being created Um they're obviously they they bought instagram these these social media brands have actually been around for quite a long time now it's coming up to 20 years that facebook has been around for example and the core product hasn't changed in a lot of ways and it's and you feel like the winds are changing and maybe as as more antitrust uh, legislation comes in the u.s perhaps as the public opinion has uh, maybe soured towards some social media brands that they're actually going to need to step up the game and innovate more i think mm. You remind me of a column I read recently in The Guardian by the writer Joel Golby. Do you know him? Um, he, re- he wrote a funny piece about how the internet has actually become this really boring place to be. And, he, you know, it's controlled primarily by these two little blue icons on your phone. And you just go back and forth and Facebook is just a bunch of updates from people you went to school with. And but you see the same meme circulating and, you know, he's it was a very funny piece, but it just makes the point that you're hinting at. Like, where is the innovation? Wasn't the Internet supposed to be an exciting place for us to be? Um, there's there's not much of creativity or innovation happening there. Well, exactly. And it comes to, you know, I don't want to bang on about antitrust, but the thing is, if you want to have a vibrant, competitive landscape, be that in art, be that in social media, be that in journalism, be that, in, you know, it's the marketplace of ideas. And you need to have a referee who is actually making sure that that ecosystem is being oxygenated. And yeah, if you if you leave it to the free market, then you're just going to have some big players, some big companies um, continue to accumulate more power in that space. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen. So, you know, we've we've got people call it a duopoly. It's actually respective monopolies, Facebook and Google, and they're different spheres of the, the internet. And they control over, what, 80% of the market. And so there's very little room for, you know, if, if you control that much, uh, why do you need to innovate is is the question i guess um so more oxygenation is needed and uh yeah i i completely take the point about if people do the same on memes it makes the internet a boring place um okay Brittany. apart from thinking up new memes what are you going to be up to in the next few days <laughs> Uh, Well, International Women's Day is coming up soon, and to go along with that, I interviewed Mitch Oliver from Mars, who's done some really interesting stuff with that company around gender equality, so that piece should be coming out relatively soon, and that's what I'll be working on. How about you? Great. What will I be working on? Uh, I just finished uh, doing my column for the new magazine. Uh, We are expecting a lot, a lot of media reviews to be launched over the next few weeks. And I explain why in my article. And I also hope that as we get more and more of these reviews, and we talked a lot about um, innovation just now, um, and with Airbnb, just how the dynamic has changed for advertising, I hope a lot of brands will actually not just use media reviews as an opportunity to see if they can spend less on their media and get a better deal from whoever they appoint as their media agency and actually 
think about creativity, think about how they can actually maybe work with different sorts of companies as the opportunities change for media planning and buying. Um, so, yeah, so our magazine comes out on Thursday, I believe, next week. So check that out. Um, but until then, obviously, you can see all these stories we talked about and more on campaignlive.co.uk. Thanks, Brittany. See you next time. And now to our interview with the Conscious Advertising Network and O2. Joining me now are Jake Dubbins and Laura Lesser. Jake is co-chair of the Conscious Advertising Network, a body launched in 2019 with the aim of empowering advertisers to make choices that will take a stand against unethical practices in advertising. The network now has 70 member organisations and is supported by the UK advertiser trade body ISBA. It provides information, manifestos and training for how brands can stop funding harmful content, whether that be terrorism, child exploitation or climate change denial. Hello to you, Jake, first of all. Where does the podcast find you? And explain to the people uh, what Media Bounty does. I think that's your day job, MD of Media Bounty, uh, and how you became involved in setting up, is it CAN or C-A-N? How do we say it? It, it is CAN. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, uh, where am I sitting now? I'm in Stroud. Uh, we, uh, we moved to Stroud a year ago. Uh, so I don't know it at all. Uh, haven't been able to go out, uh, obviously. So know the immediate vicinity around the house, but that's about it. Um, yeah. So me- Media Bounty, we are a um, uh, an ethical, uh, independent ethical creative agency. So uh, we look at strategy, creative, and media buying. Um, so we do that on an ethical basis. I've uh, been going for quite some time, but always wanted to do a lot more than make money. Um, uh, uh, in 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 this advertising world, um, and then can you know Harriet and I co-chair it. We set it up in early twenty eighteen and launched it in in twenty nineteen. And really, where it came from for 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 me was I um, I lived in East London at the time. Um, loved living in East London. Loved the vibe. Loved the you know the pretty much everything about it um, uh, until. Um, my neighbour uh, was very badly beaten up in um, the local pub there called the Lord Morpeth. Oh dear. Um, and you know he he, you know he was um, beaten up with a landlord, had a young child, three month old, and his the reason why was because he was Turkish. So he got you know um, it was a racist gang. So I started getting interested in hate and the narratives of hate. Um, and met Harriet at a conference that was talking about the ethics of artificial intelligence, and we thought we could do something in the advertising space. Uh, well, that um, that's obviously horrific. That's terrible. I hope that person is okay now. Um, it's funny how incidents like that kind of wake you up to kind of what's happening in everyday life and how you can make a difference. Um, we'll, we'll get more into CN in a second, but before we do, um, say hello to Laura Lesser. Laura, hi. Uh, she's Head of Culture and Innovation at O2, the mobile network that can't get enough of Sean Bean and sponsoring live venues. Uh, Laura is a member of the Conscious Advertising Network. Uh, Laura, where do we find you today? And your job title sounds great, Head of Culture and Innovation. What does it involve? <laughs> well, um, I'm actually in Islington today. Um, and I've lived here for quite a long time and I really love the area apart from uh, being a Tottenham fan so close to Arsenal. Ah. Um, but apart from that, it is wonderful. 
And um, my my job at O2 involves um, looking at how we can sort of drive uh, brand fame and and reach for the brand. Um, and also a, a big part of it is working with our PR and, and corporate affairs team around our uh, social responsibility, which we call our blueprint. And so um, as a, a company that prides ourselves on being a customer first organisation, it's really working together to make sure that all of our advertising is representative of our customers and also serving our customers and making a, a bigger contribution to society as well. Okay, great. Now, Jake, um, explain. You, you explained a bit about how um, Can came about and how long it's been around. Um, so, after eighteen months, what's the state of play? What what successes have you had, and what what does the landscape look like? Is it is it more difficult than you thought it was? Um, I would say yes, it is more difficult than we thought it was because our central question, really, to and our challenge to to brands and and agencies is do you want to fund either hate or COVID disinformation, climate disinformation, um, even attempted coups in the US um, with your advertising? And obviously the answer to that question is is no. Um, it, it's taken time to get traction. I think that, you know, because nobody really knew who we are, we were um, back then. It was difficult to, I guess, um, uh, get people behind it. But I, I'm really sort of um, encouraged by the way in which the industry is now going. I think the industry is waking up to its its Im- influence, I think, not just its responsibilities, but, you know, literally advertising funds the, the entire Internet. You know, without advertising, pretty much Google and Facebook don't exist. So I think it's taken a while for advertisers to recognise their influence on the narratives that we see and that affect all of us on a, on a daily basis. And, and so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's been a slog and, you know, we're all volunteers as well. So it's, you know, as, as you mentioned up front, we all have day jobs. So, um, it, it's been a, a roller coaster, but enormously rewarding. And we've, you know, we've had some great successes. We have defunded, uh, and worked to defund many, you know, far right organizations, um, militia groups in the US, pre-genocidal content in India, anti-Semitic content in, in Australia. Um, we're working closely with the United Nations. Uh, there's, there's an awful lot that we're doing. And how have you, have you done that? Give, it, give an example, just one of those areas. Um, so one of the things that we, uh, we do is we always work we don't we don't do anything publicly, so we never call out brands, uh, for example, uh, because, you know, brands, certainly in the programmatic supply chain, don't really often realise that they might be advertising next to some horrific content. And effectively, we work with those brands to identify, you know, where they sit and then um, they then either tip off or they, they then work with the ad tech providers to remove not just sometimes their ads, but we then can look at the site behind it. And a lot of the tech providers have withdrawn the services of advertising to some of those sites. And Laura, um, O2, um, how does a brand like yours ensure that it's, it's not, um, it's media spend isn't funding any of these, uh, these, these hateful pieces of content, for example? Yeah, a, a really good example um, from O2 side is that 
Um, with the pandemic, we saw that dozens of our masts were being destroyed by um, misinformed members of the public. Like every yeah. every week, it was it was really terrible. Um, and it wasn't the even, 5G um, masks. Yeah, it was, so it was down to um, conspiracy theories connecting 5G and COVID. But it wasn't even necessarily the 5G masts being destroyed. It was you know 3G and 4G ones that were keeping everyone connected, keeping vulnerable people in touch, and even you know allowing the emergency services to do their jobs. So um, we actually worked closely with Can and Google. Um, to um, add COVID misinformation to its dangerous and derogatory content policy so that um, co content was no longer available for monetization. So that was a really good example, as Jake said, of how we can you know, work together um, to make positive change for the wider industry. And with regards to how things work behind the scenes at O2, what, what would you say has changed? So um, when, when we joined CAN, we... We really looked closely at all of the manifestos that were in place and um, we're really proud um, of how closely we've worked with our agencies as well and have us, um, our media agency, VCCP, our creative agency, they've, um, they've all recently become members of CAN as well. And um, a big part of that has been sort of everyone's commitment towards it. So um, having joined, when we looked at the manifestos, we set out sort of what our short-term and long-term goals were. Um, and one of the uh, priorities for us was making sure that we weren't funding, um, you know, misinformation and hate speech, etc. Um, so working closely with Havas, we um, took a look at our, um, our block lists um, and made sure that, you know, we work with partners like IAS for verification as, as well um, and made sure that those block lists um, were covering the right topic areas and we regularly review those on a monthly basis as well. Um, and important to that is also making sure we're not defunding good journalism. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of work that's um, gone out to show that words like Muslim and lesbian and um, etc., and minority voices are being blocked out. So that was a step that we took to make sure that we weren't also, um, you know, defunding positive um, and, you know, uh, solid journalism at the same time. Um, but it's an ongoing process um, and we have a framework that we review all of our digital partners against now. And that's um, a combination of uh, the CAN manifestos um, and also a few other areas that we look at, but um, it's it's definitely takes commitment from all of our agencies working together on that with us. Yeah, Laura, you, you raised an important point with keyword blocking in particular, and we saw that a lot with COVID-19 last year, um, where, you know, perfectly reasonable news stories about the pandemic were frankly being blocked by a lot of brands because i suppose it's you can call it this sledgehammer to crack a walnut approach where brands are so want to be safe when it comes to contextual and open web advertising that they just end up uh, not appearing next to reasonable content um jake is it i mean we mentioned uh, the problems of open web buying i mean is that main mostly the culprit here and if so surely if, if it's a if it's an industrial problem there needs to be an industrial solution um yeah i'd say i'd say that certainly open web buying is is a is a significant problem because of you know now you know a lot of the big brands have exclusion lists and and and, so, and a lot work just from inclusion lists so so some brands will never be anywhere near some of the worst stuff 
um again laura's absolutely right you, you know we we um uh, sort of fight hard to to make sure that it, as you said it's not cracking and walnut with a with a sledgehammer because you know in the same way that you know coronavirus journalism got demonetized you know black lives matter got de you know uh, demonetized we've also got a pretty simplistic approach to climate as well and and with you know cop 26 um happening in the uk this year you know at the moment uh, for most uh of, of of the uh of the online space you can either switch climate on or switch it off uh which is a bit mad because if you switch it on you might be next to global warming is a hoax or a, a lovely david attenborough film about what we should be doing about <laughs> climate change so so these are you know this takes effort um laura's absolutely right she's worked they've worked really hard with their agencies to identify you know block lists uh but you know it it it, it takes effort and work um uh, as well i would just say that it's not just the online environment um you know we've identified a number of um tv stations in uh in europe and and also further afield in 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 india with partners in india um that are you know again um sort of propagating either disinformation or hate speech so there's a, a channel in poland for example that that is calling lgbt ideology ruining the family and a rainbow plague for example and and putting out things that uh, there's gay fair child fairs for gay people to traffic children for example so you know there's ads have been pulled from there as well so so it's, it's really kind of it's not just uh, the online environment it is broadcast it is print in 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 Poland again you know there's a newspaper giving out LGBT free zone stickers um, you know with with copies that that we've also confronted as well so it's it's we try and we try and you know it's it's not just one media uh, but but it's you know we try and cross uh, uh, as many media as, as as we're alerted to yeah um thankfully we have ofcom in the uk um so we um we don't have the nearly as many problems with that um on the other side though we we do have um the platforms such as facebook and google and you know even at the at the start of this year um there there've been stories about um anti-vax ads appearing next to youtube content animal cruelty was was another topic uh, this, th I mean, this keeps happening. It's been happening for years. Where essentially, uh, not too dissimilar from open web buying, you've got these platforms where um, content they're not checked at source. Uh, they can only be um, you know, whether it's AI or human moderation. They're only checked after they're actually published. And unfortunately, for for many of these things, that the advertising uh, is bought automatically. So. <laughs> You're never going to have enough human moderators, are you? You're never going to have a perfect AI, I presume, that's going to catch all of this stuff before it goes on. Is it? Isn't it the system that's the problem, Jake? And you know, ha, ha, even though this is, a, this is a really good initiative that you're, you've you've launched and are part of, um, it's it. You're, you're never going to solve it, and that's the nature of these platforms change. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think um, you know the system is the problem i mean none of the platforms were set up with with ethics by design right they weren't set up to say um okay what are we gonna how are we gonna mitigate against you know exploiting children or anti-vax or 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 or, uh, or or hate speech for example so so no i think i think that's right i think that um 
you know, we're all doing this in an absence of adequate regulation, right? You know, you said that fortunately we have Ofcom in this in 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 this country to to look at, you know, broadcast media and and and, you know, hopefully soon they'll be looking um over over the internet as well. And I know the tech platforms are asking for regulation, but you know, in the absence of regulation, you know, we feel that you're absolutely right. There should be less automation and more human due diligence on what is monetized and also the sorts of ads that are, are, are allowed to appear on some of the the platforms as well i mean we found ads on on facebook that literally say climate change is a hoax um and you know that's money being spent on the platform by it's just been waved through uh, which you know it's just it's not good enough the 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 it needs it needs much more human moderation um uh, combined with with ai uh, as well and Laura, what advice would you have for brands that um that that want to measure progress in this area? Do you, are there benchmarks, for example, that O2 has in place for actually um measuring how well it's doing? Um, I th- I think it's really important um to be clear on yeah what your aspirations are in this area more broadly. So, um, around sort of being an ethical and responsible business. So. Um, for example, at O2, we constantly strive to help our customers live better with tech. And that's a really clear purpose for us from our ongoing partnership with the NSPCC, for example, um, and providing tangible solutions to help uh, people keep their kids safe online. Um, so I think it starts with that and having a really clear purpose across the business um, and then making sure the team is really clear to understand uh, the importance of this and you know where are their ads appearing like are there actually uh, real people seeing them and reaching diverse audiences and so I think that's the starting point and then in terms of tracking progress we have um, a regular monthly steering committee um, with our agencies so there's um, key people that are really driving it forward in our business and we're setting ourselves metrics based on the CAN manifestos uh, to see where there are improvements uh, that need to be made and almost giving ourselves a rating against those. Um, but I think it a lot of it is um, do versus say. So it's making sure you're not just talking about these things um, on an ongoing basis. There is a regular forum and people are sort of accountable in their areas for making progress. And um, you mentioned some of the work that um, your media agency, Havas Media, um, has been doing. Um, how would you suggest that brands um, hold media agencies to account um, and hold, in, in addition to what you've just said about holding themselves to, to account um, to actually ensure that um, all the spend, all the media spend is ethical? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important because... Um, for us, you know, there's a there's a business case for it, right? We want to be making sure that we're advertising to real people and, you know, driving efficiency, effectiveness, etc. Um, so I think ultimately it is our it is our responsibility to make sure that's happening, and there could be you know reputational risks, etc. Um, but with the media agencies, they're they're our experts to make sure that we're keeping up to speed with the pace of change in the industry as well. Um, so we expect them to, you know, make sure that they are uh, sharing uh, insights about where we can make more ethical um, and positive investments, um, making sure that they're working with other partners such as 
um, Ubiquity um, and IAS that we work with regularly. Um, and Havas have recently set up um, a social equity marketplace as well, which we're really looking forward to exploring more with them. And that focuses on uh, helping underrepresented and minority voices so that we can allocate media spend towards that. Um, so it goes back to that point about making sure that um, not only are we not defunding good journalism, but we're also clear on the pos positive choices um, that we can make and sort of new channels and more independent partners that we might not necessarily um, always look at as a, as a mass brand. Just to build on on Laura's point about you know the the O two purpose and 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 you know the you know the what what Laura's talk, talking about about um yeah O two's purpose and so the business case and and Laura you know uh, alluded to Havas's social equity marketplace you know Havas also talk about meaningful brands and meaningful media so again it aligns to you know their business their raison d'etre to to actually you know meaningful media means advertising to real people meaningfully but 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 meaningful media certainly doesn't mean um funding some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier so it's it's intrinsic to to their business as well as you know just doing the right thing yeah and I, in terms of um building trust and and relevance as well i think that's just been you know, completely heightened by the pandemic um, in the last year. And it's why a lot of people are looking to um, new channels as well, like TikTok and new communities um, that are more positive places to be. Um, and that's, you know, I think it, I read yesterday, it's seen a 75%, um, you know, increase in users in the last year, which I know they didn't have a big, big base to start with, but I think the rapid growth there has just shown that um, consumers are looking for brands to be real and, and more relatable and, and trustworthy with them. And they are moving away from some of the other social platforms. Yes, but um, it's fine. Um, we had figures from Thinkbox earlier, what was last month um, at the TV ad summit that campaign ran. And they, they showed us new Barb figures where they said TikTok uh, made up 3.5% of all UK viewing in 2020, all. And that's compared to about 13% for YouTube, which is extraordinary that TikTok is essentially a third as big as YouTube in terms of UK viewing. That's for all individuals, not um, young people. It's obviously much bigger for young people. It's extraordinary. Um, now, Jake, um, O2 is a big brand and has a lot of resources um, to focus on um, ethics in its media planning and buying. But particularly when it comes to Facebook and Google, so much of their advertiser revenue comes from small, medium-sized businesses, many of whom, you know, they're unfortunately not reading Campaign Magazine, they're not listening to this podcast probably, and they're just not aware of you, they're not aware of the issues about where, you know, if they're, if they're buying things, where their ads might be being placed. And it's it's a growing source of revenue. So, how do you reach those people? Isn't isn't that the if we're going to call the elephant in the room? Isn't this long tail the the elephant? If I can mix those metaphors, uh, yes. Uh, and and the direct answer to how we reach those per the people is no idea. <laughs> um, uh, I think I think that you know we weren't talking about misinformation uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we weren't you know a lot of these um, conspiracy theories, QAnon, you know obviously covid didn't exist you know uh just over a year ago so you know covid denial 
is is a new phenomenon. Climate denial has been around for a, a long time, but is seeing a spike now. I think society and and uh, has a responsibility, and I and I also think media channels, the the newspapers, the the broadcasters, that those that are regulated by Ofcom um, also have a. a almost a duty to to educate uh, everybody to to bring the this issue um to the surface and sort of you know talk about this how it works what's 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 behind it how, you know how to avoid it what to trust what not to trust and i think you know the bbc has uh, obviously now has a full-time disinformation reporter you know we'd like to see a lot more of that across you know uh, across the media i did an interview or a, an event um with the environment editor at the times uh ben webster who said uh, you know uh, uh, that this sort of stuff never crosses his desk and that to me is both reassuring but also frightening because you know it's reassuring that you know the times doesn't have to you know necessarily judge between you know he, he doesn't get to judge uh, uh sort of which which misinformation may or may not be true but it also means that maybe there's not the awareness of the scale of the problem so maybe we need uh, as a as a community as an advertising community as an media community to be better highlight this issue for everybody and that includes small businesses and it includes the the long tail that, that you talked about so we can have a kind of whole society uh, response to this yeah and I'd, I'd just add that um you know you don't have to be um sort of perfect in all these areas to join can it is all about providing those um tangible and actionable solutions for people um so don't feel like you know you have to know everything about misinformation or diversity inclusion it's definitely a journey um and there's always new new things to take on board as well and having access to can gives you um that thought leadership um and advice when when you need to make these decisions and decide what to do okay um thank you very much um for both appearing on the podcast and um as i said it's the conscious advertising network and jake how can people find out more about this initiative um well you can uh get in touch with us on uh our, our website which is uh consciousadnetwork.org uh you can follow us on twitter um and yeah get it get in touch find out more it's um we are free to join everything that we do is open source uh, uh, there's no sort of hidden payment costs that come later on. We're we're really trying to um, solve the problem together. So uh, get in touch, get involved. Great, Laura Lesser, Jake Dubbins. Thanks very much for coming on the show. And that's the show. That's it. Thank you for listening, dear listener. And thanks to Jake Dubbins, Laura Lesser and Brittany Kiefer for joining this episode of the Campaign Podcast. This episode was edited by Lindsay Wiley and Campaign Magazine can, of course, be found at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please do subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and please send feedback to campaign at haymarket.com and remember to put podcasts in the subject line. Goodbye and I hope you can join us again next week.